0: You're listening to Discriminology, the podcast that aims to dismantle discrimination, one discussion at a time. Produced by Launchpad 516 Studios with your hosts Malik Silau, Steve Kramer, and Sydney Penn.
1: Welcome back, everyone, to this episode of Discriminology. Does activism have a place in sports? The conversation concerning whether activism has a place in sports is a frequent topic in the media. Conservative TV personalities like Laura Ingram have made derisive statements like shut up and dribble about modern day athletes, claiming that they lack the credentials to speak out on socio-political topics. Activism in sports, however, is not a new occurrence, which tends to be left out of the discourse. In today's episode, we will cite major historical examples of social justice demonstrations in the sports world. Helping us do so is returning guest Olivia Gordon. Welcoming back Olivia, she earned her JD at the University of Baltimore L- School of Law with a concentration in business and sports. She also has a BA in sociology from Loyola University, Maryland. Olivia previously appeared on our 12th episode, Exploitation of College Athletes. Welcome back, Olivia.
2: Thank you. Thank you for that wonderful intro. I'm so glad to be back. Thanks, Discriminology Podcast, for having me again.
0: Did we miss anything since we last met? Any any new... I, I knew you were working with the NFL for a little bit.
2: I was. So that was... Oh, boy. That was... Um, it was an experience. No, it was a wonderful experience. But doing that while studying for the bar um i don't recommend because <laughs> i was <laughs> running around um like a chicken without a head for the better part of the summer um <laughs> but it was a really great experience just finally getting into um an intro into really what i wanted to do i was working in player personnel and dealing with a lot of the contracts a lot of waivers Every transaction that happens comes through the New York office. Uh, getting to see what that was like in real time, uh, they kept me on through roster cutdown, which was super exciting because that's a very, very exciting but stressful week for the team. And now that I've gone through that process, I'm, I'm still wondering who on these teams is blabbing to the media because there were things that they would report that didn't even come through our office yet and i'm sitting there going who like who is telling these people this information um i i didn't even know about cam newton getting cut you know at first and i thought we would have been first to know but lo and behold i felt like we were the last people to know that he was being <laughs> that he was being released um so it's wild it's a wild and crazy thing working in sports
0: yeah i, I would think you'd be nose to the ground too but in terms of just knowing what's going on. But I, I, I guess Bleacher Report gets everything first.
2: Bleacher Report, Ian Rap Report, Schefter. I mean, oh goodness, the insiders are truly insiders. You know, before I used to think, like, okay, they, they just really know the information. And then maybe everybody else knows maybe an hour later. No. <laughs> they have the jump on everything. They truly do.
0: Yeah, that's, uh... Didn't expect that. But, um... Yeah, Olivia, the last time we spoke, it was more so about the exploitation of college athletes. I think this time we wanted to zoom out more and, and discuss activism in sports. Uh, before we get into the long term historical examples of it, I think we should start with a name that almost everyone is familiar in Colin Kaepernick. Uh, can you walk us through your thoughts on his rise to activism and fall in terms of his NFL career?
2: Sure. Um, so I think, like you said, I think Colin Kaepernick, when we think modern day sports activist, it's probably the person that comes to the forefront of everybody's mind uh, because it's, you know, keeping in mind the NFL. Um, one of the things they like to tell us at the office is that it's the most popular sport um, in the United States. And as far as viewership and ticket sales, um, the 17, the now 17 weeks that occur in an NFL regular season, are such highly watched TV events from even preseason all the way up until you know the first week of that first Sunday of February, um, whoever it was that was going that made this decision, I, I believe hands down, probably would have gone through um, a lot of the same thing, same things that Colin Kaepernick did, um, but. Kaepernick started being very active on social media, um, you know, keeping in mind that this was acquittals of, you know, all the police officers in the Freddie Gray case. Um, There was a few police shootings, one of Charles Kinsey. um, You also had the Philando Castile uh, and Alton Brown shootings that occurred. So it was a pretty hectic year as far as these police shootings are occurring, People are angry. People are speaking up all around. Um, Colin Kaepernick really threw his hat into the ring as far as an athlete who said, I'm, I'm not just going to talk about it on social media, but I'm going to use my platform to do something. So he started just, the first couple of preseason games that season, he actually just, he sat. Um, then he, and it was, you know, people started to kind of notice. There were a few photographers who were taking pictures. I would say the first maybe one or two preseason games, it didn't really go notice because you know preseason very hectic a lot's going on by the last preseason game it starts getting significant media attention um in that time between the like the last preseason game and the first game of the regular season he meets with um a former nfl player and um army veteran nate boyer who suggests to him well how about kneeling as a form of um activism in this field because it still pays respect to the veterans and active military personnel, but it also gets your point across of not wanting to salute the flag and not wanting to take part in this national anthem because of everything that's going on. So the idea really um, came from an NFL player and veteran um, of the armed forces, which, and, you know, as far as I think if you're going to listen to anybody's advice, right, on what to do, as far as you still want to show respect to the armed forces, because that's that's not who it's about. Um, what better person to listen to than someone who was a player and a veteran? So that's where it came from. The aspect of kneeling, in general, um, the greater aspect of protesting came from a lot of what was going on in the preceding year, you know, between 2015 and 2016. And of course, we all know that from the time he decided to kneel during the national anthem, it gets this firestorm of media attention. I mean, even if you... You could have been, I would say, in maybe pretty remote parts of not just the United States, but the world, somebody who doesn't watch football. And suddenly Colin Kaepernick's name is not just national, but it's global. This is a global example of activism in a very, very American heavy sport. It takes the conversation of police brutality, um, police shootings, good cops, bad cops, it puts all of that on not just the national stage, but a global stage. And we've seen the consequences of Colin Kaepernick's actions, right? He hasn't played for a professional football team in about four seasons now, four or five seasons now. And, you know, I think most people are pretty clear that was he, was he blackballed from the NFL? I think everybody's pretty clear that that is what happened.
0: I think the NFL is unique in the sense that, and correct me if I'm wrong, there seems to be a lot of chauvinism in the NFL. I mean, you have the flag on the entire field, you have the military present, obviously the anthem. Is is that present in other global sports, or, or is that very, is, or is that a very American thing?
2: Well, it's the, I think that's such an excellent point, Malik. It's a very, very um, hyper American patriotic symbolism entity and you know really keeping in mind as as we just commemorated the 20th anniversary of 9/11 9/11 is really what changed the way that patriotism and sports began to collide because prior to it you had you know for every um, American major sporting event you know Super Bowls, Um, NBA All-Star Games, Baseball All-Star Games. You had somebody sing the anthem and, you know, Marvin Gaye did it very well, you know, in the NBA. And that's a big one. Whitney doing it um, back in the 90s um, in the NFL. Those are huge events. But it was really something, the fanfare aspect, the planes flying overhead, the the flag being, a huge flag being waved over the entire field. Those were things that happened at Super Bowl, NBA Finals World Series that that's really you know NHL um, Stanley Cup like that's what it was kind of limited to. post 9/11 it becomes every single game and I, and I actually would say that that you know I'm a huge Yankee fan it really started um, with the Yankees. I would definitely say Yankee Stadium is like at the core um, of where that began. Um, especially with Yankee Stadium, would always do you know the seventh inning stretch, and it used to be Kate Smith who sang the na- who's recording of the national anthem was played for the seventh inning stretch. But that was once that happened, and baseball resumed. You know, not too long after, really, baseball postseason, you begin to see this shift in the way, and you know, to some sense, like an iconography of the flag, um, of the symbolism of the anthem. That really starts after 9-11 in particular. So it's very, very, very American. And it is really pinpointed to 20 years ago where that really starts to happen.
0: And the reason I ask you that question is because obviously some of the other examples that we plan on going through today are pre-9-11. Um, so do you think this exacerbated the backlash to Kaepernick? Do you think his his stand is unique relative to the other activists that we're going to talk that we're going to go over today because of the ethos of the time period that he chose to protest in, or was it going to happen regardless
2: absolutely i think a certain amount of backlash um you know as as we get more into you know the other uh gentlemen and the other women who did protest later on i think time period you know people have faced backlash no matter what uh, but i do think The particular time period that we're in, that we were in when he began this, uh, getting into 2016 in, you know, U.S. politics, U.S. sports, the U.S. conversation on a global scale, there was a a shift was really starting to happen. And even when you would see who was commenting on Kaepernick and what they were saying, uh, there was definitely a shift to where this was a, amongst many groups, a highly unpopular protest or people saying this isn't the time to do this or even a lot of people saying this shouldn't be happening you shouldn't be protesting period look at where you are in the world look at how much money you're making who are you to protest so I definitely think time um is always a factor but you know in in particularly where the country was where the country has gone since then I think did like amount to a bit more backlash yes
1: yeah your 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 point about it going to a global stage has uh, had tremendous ramifications on global sports you know international sports are now taking these the premier League in England they have uh, their program is called no room for racism where they all kneel before every game now so one or two guys are are hold, held out but they're not they're not um they're not blackballed or they're not uh, you know, they're not scoring, but everybody does it and every game is doing it in, in England before uh, before the kickoff. So that that kaepernick Neil has certainly certainly grown and expanded globally. I, I think that's a very important point.
2: I think that's such a wonderful point with every single person we talk about today and those who we who are you know left out of today's conversation, think it for the most part, all of those people on a on a major scale. Have been vindicated. Um, I just hate that vindication sometimes comes either after death or when a person is, you know, incapacitated. I, I I want people to hear that they were right, you know, while they are still alive and well, and and can receive those flowers for you know the contributions they've made.
1: When we start talking about the, these other ones, these these more historical, or more famous ones from from history, that the time period for the power structure never really matters. You know, it's never the right time to protest, I think. I don't think the I don't think any of the conservative people or any of the, the power structure people have ever looked at a black protest and be like, oh yeah, great timing guys, you know, that's that's great. Like, I'm glad you guys stood up then, you know. Um, there, it's, it's never the right time, it's never the right platform, there's always a better way you know these people always have a real good way of telling you the way you're protesting is not the right way or the right time just wait you know famously just wait longer so all all of these protests obviously happened during these real heightened moments in in our history real heightened racial moments in our history where racial tensions were really brewing and then you know everybody's afraid like oh no no don't don't do it now wait wait a little while but I think I think as we get through this conversation, we're going to find that that every one of the people who's protested has been vindicated in the end where they were vilified when they did it. They've been vindicated now. So uh, I, I think that's a pretty common reaction. So I think that would be a, a great time to talk about uh, to bring up Tommy Smith and John Carlos. Right. Because these are our two of our most famous protesters who who were absolutely vilified at the time. So I don't know Malik, you think it's a good time?
0: Either those two, or I, I wanted to also ask Olivia how Jim Brown compared to Colin Kaepernick. Cause I know he was very active uh, while he was playing, but I, I feel like a lot of, it, especially in my age group, don't know Jim Brown as the activist, more so we know him as the all time great running back. But either, either direction is fine.
2: I could, well, let me, I will quickly say, you know, as far as the Jim Brown piece, I, you know, even to a certain point, I don't, so my, my, my younger brother is 17, will be 18. I'm not even sure how much he knows of Jim Brown as the amazing all-time running back, um, let alone activist, you know, we're starting to get to that point. Um, but I think, you know, because of what Jim Brown experienced, I think it's so monumental and, and, you know, I think for a myriad of reasons that it's, More people tend to talk about Muhammad Ali and and Kaepernick than they do with Jim Brown and Kaepernick. Um, And I think in large part, maybe because the the global impact of the protest. I don't know if Jim Brown's effect was as I would say it's probably not as global. I think it was definitely on a national scale. You know, Jim Brown becomes a a wildly somebody who's already wildly right popular amongst the black community i think becomes even more wildly popular um throughout the 70s uh, as his image really becomes this activist figure who is saying that all these records all these i mean across the board so many records are being broken uh, people really couldn't touch you know you, you couldn't really touch them people and again you know in another direction that has its own comments people would make on why he was so fast and, and things like that, you know, that's for another day. Um, but as he becomes more vocal and saying, I'm playing in this league, but people don't understand what I'm going through in my locker room. People don't understand what I'm going through as soon as I'm getting on the team bus, times when I can't fly with the team because of what years Jim Brown really, you know, came into the league, you know, college, even when he came out of college, college football is still so, 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 highly racist to the point of people and teams not really playing each other and intersecting conferences because teams would just outright refuse to play certain teams that had black players on it. Um, There were so few when Jim Brown came out. I mean, so few, it was truly, truly a handful. I think people forget when you look at College football now, you look at a team like Alabama, you look at Clemson, you look at the Ohio State, you look at these premier programs, their rosters are at this point about 75% black. That just wasn't a thing. And it took Jim Brown being, you know, so great on the field, um, but also I think paying certain prices in his personal life, yes, for being as vocal as he was. But I don't think. It's as known because I don't believe it had the same global effect. Um, as we segue into the Olympics conversation with um, Carlos and Smith and Norman as well, um, which is a piece that also really, really gets left out. You That's know, right. this is the the Olympics. It's the world stage. I think, you know, seeing especially, and I think this is such a, this is so timely for this conversation, Um, considering that we just had an Olympics, you see how truly global it is, right? You know, when Simone Biles says, "I, I need time, I'm taking time. You see how it gets this global reaction. So the Olympics is truly, truly, truly as global and as big an event as it gets. It's 1968. This is when Dr. King is assassinated in the same year, just a few months prior. Times are really tense on a racial, social, political, economic, right, social justice scale. I I would say we probably hadn't been, like, things probably hadn't been that tense until probably right before Kaepernick began his protest, and then also within the last year of, you know, the death of George Floyd and what we just saw, we the country, you know, we just hadn't seen the country at at that point of tension. Um, But they decide, you know, they only had one pair of gloves, and it was Norman who suggests, well, why don't you guys just wear one person, one glove on one hand and one glove on the other and do the salute. And it was an ingenious move. And this we get this poster image that becomes immortalized um, in sports, outside of sports. And again, on a global scale of people saying we're standing for human rights. Uh, Now, it's interesting because I believe in later years, you know, Tommy Smith had said that it wasn't. Necessarily a black power salute, but that it was a human rights salute. Um, they were standing against human rights injustices. You know, of course, in the United States, but all over. Um, and it was something that, of course, at the time was not well received at all. Um, Smith and Carlos are are ostracized. I mean, as ostracized as it gets. Peter Norman, who was standing in solidarity, um, was also, you know, protesting in his own way against Australia at the time who had some, which has kind of gone under the radar, but Australia also had some pretty serious, um, white nationalist laws and things in effect at the time as well, that Peter Norman was against. Um, so while in later years, I would say Carlos and Smith have been vindicated, Peter Norman died before he ever got any sort of vindication. You know, he lived the rest of his life in basically in, in obscurity, being ostracized. He qualifies for the Olympics in 72. They won't even let him run. They're like, no, you are you have stood in solidarity with these people. You have protested. You, you're saying that you believe Australia is racist in what it's doing. And OK, you don't like it. You'll never run professionally again. Um, And I think that goes to show the price that people pay for just being in solidarity, you know, with people standing up and saying that something is wrong and we need to stand for social justice or we need to stand for human rights. We need to stand for black rights, fill in the blank. Um, They paid a heavy price, but I would say most above that, Norman never lived to see any sort of the public apologies that came after his death, which is, you know, it's so disheartening because after he passes, of course, and you know, it's 2000 and everybody then wants to go, oh, you know, you were right. And we never should have done this. I said, well, he's in the ground and he'll never know that this, that all this has happened afterward and, and this true impact um, of what he did just being in solidarity. Um, but the global impact of the salute um, I think is you know what places it in conversation is is one of the most talked about activist events I think in in our history.
1: Yeah, for sure. And then and then Smith and uh, Carlos were given the SB uh, Courage Awards uh, back in I, I believe it was two thousand and eight. I'm pretty sure. So you talk about a public sports welcome to these two men who were who were, you know absolutely shunned at at the time and vilified and death threats. As far as Norman, I I know that his house was burned down in Australia. Um, He lived, you know, he became an alcoholic, lived in obscurity, he was shunned. So your points about uh, about people just standing in solidarity are are very, very well taken.
2: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's, it's really a shame how long you know, it has taken for certain athletes to get that vindication. um, When it you know, in the case of Norman and Smith, Um, and Carlos 40 plus years for somebody to finally acknowledge that what they did was, was, you know, not only extremely brave and courageous, but the right thing to do and what everybody should have been looking to do. Um, But you see, you know, even the responses to that beyond just what of public opinion, you know, the international Olympic committee w- was very clear on the Olympics is not the place to protest. And we don't like this and nobody will ever protest again. And, you know, here we are at 2020 now, and it's, people are not protesting. It's, you know, since then, I, I think it's, unfortunately, it scared a lot of people away from, um, protesting in that sense to that, to that scale on that particular field. Um, I think people have gotten, you know, a little bit scared because we see how, you know, for certain people, um, the medals and the prestige, the money, the endorsements that come with it, um, it's so needed for so many of these athletes who dedicate their time to training to represent our country. Um, Money, money is at the heart of a lot of these things. And I would say that's been the thing that stops a lot of other people from exercising that right to protest,
1: which which is crazy, because the Olympics has such a long history of being politicized. You know, you go back to the Munich Games and Hitler, and and then you go, you know, to the to the boycotts in 1980, and then the the communist countries not being allowed to participate. It was like. So countries are able to use the Olympics as this political stage to make a point, but individuals are not allowed to talk about human rights at the Olympics, right? It's just, it's such, it's such incredible hypocrisy from, from that committee. And of course that committee's terribly corrupt too. Uh, they've had all sorts of problems internally with all sorts of scandals, you know?
0: I would push that a step further. And even beyond the Olympics, it seems that there's only tremendous backlash to bringing political or social topics into sports when they are, when the positions are antithetical to whatever the dominant culture is. If it represents a minority interest, I, I guess this is my opinion. It seems that's where most of the backlash occurs.
2: No, absolutely. I think that's that's such a fair statement. And even, you know, we didn't put, you know, soccer specifically on our list for today, but I think, you know, soccer could have its own, football, apologies, could have its own episode in itself because of the ways that on that global scale, the protesting that has been occurring and to see what they're doing now when whole teams will just say we're not playing, um, it's it's a marvel to me. And I, you know, it's made me more of a fan of the sport to see wow, people are over here, they're walking away. They're saying we're not playing whether that means that some money is going to be forfeited or not banana peels get thrown on the field they're walking off it's a it's a clear and unequivocal statement that they're not standing for it anymore no matter what pushback they get so it's it's interesting to see how it's played out uh globally and how it plays out in the united states
1: uh it's absolutely absolutely great point and and it and it certainly depends on the sport right you know we know some sports you know, baseball and football, maybe not, but the NBA, the players have a, have a tremendous connection with, with the front office and the front office has been very good with the NBA, but especially the WNBA, right? So the, the Atlanta dream, right? They were, they were owned by Kelly Loeffler. They, they basically got rid of her. They're like, yeah, you're not going to own us anymore. They got rid of their own owner. You know, like you talk about, you talk about empowering players and players being empowered to to have a voice on on their teams and in their sports. So there are definitely there are definitely major sports. The women's soccer team, the, the women's national soccer team. Now, you know, as far as gender rights go, they've just been offered. I, I believe I'm right on this. They've just been offered equal contracts to the national men's team. I'm pretty sure they got that far. So, you know, controlling their own narrative, I think has, it depends on the sport. But I think we're in a much, much better place now than we were in 2016
0: yeah for for sure um a a couple more things i wanted to bring up about uh carlos and smith before we we moved on to some other topics Uh, olivia is it true that part of their protest was walking barefoot to represent black poverty and they wore beads to protest lynching am i right about that
2: absolutely you're absolutely correct and that and i think that was part of Tommy Smith, you know, later in, in the book, yeah, silent protest, when he talks about, you know, he goes into much more detail on the enormity of the protest itself. This was, it's, and I know it gets very limited to the black power salute, black rights. Th- this was about poverty. This was about, um, black children and impoverished children who couldn't get into certain colleges. This was about the extreme impoverishment that a lot of people, you know, particularly the further down south and more rural you get, that people are experiencing. This was about victims of lynchings that were still occurring and going on. You know, I know the lynching crisis is is defined in about a 40-year period of 1880 to 1920, but lynchings were still occurring. And again, especially you live down south, you live in more rural areas. Um, a lot of fear, a lot of fear mongering was going on in the communities that they came from. But this was about human rights, human injustices. Um, so too, and I think you know Smith wanted to make it very clear that you limit it when you say it's just well, it's just a black power salute. That limits the enormity of everything else that they were standing against, you know, unequal pay, impoverishment, unequal opportunity when it comes to getting into the job market and colleges, all of those things. So absolutely.
1: We'll be right back.
3: Well, that's a nice song. Hey, hey, everybody. It's me, the Launch Dad himself, George Andriopoulos, the host of the LaunchCast, the co-host of Over My Dad podcast. But more importantly, I'm here today on behalf of Launchpad 516 Studios, the podcast production company that makes those two shows, the one you're listening to now, and so many others possible. Now, what is Launchpad 516 Studios? Well, it's the brainchild of Launchpad 516 It's a podcast production company, and we help you from conceptualization to production, to recording, to post-production, to monetization. The key word here, let's turn that hobby, that idea into a revenue stream. But more importantly, let's get that important idea out there and get your voice heard, because that's what matters right now. Hit us up, launchpad516studios.com to find out more information, Or send us an email, podcast at lp516.com. DM me at Launchpad CEO on all the platforms. Let's chat. Let's get your voice heard. We're pretty good at this, guys. Don't let this offer slip by you.
0: Later, guys. You're listening to Discriminology with your host Malik Silow, Steve Kramer, and Sydney Penn. Their protests had demands, right? One of those demands was to either reinstate Muhammad Ali or give him his championships back.
2: Yes, because there was a, so there's a crossover here where Jim Brown actually put together a Muhammad Ali summit um, in 67, um, where basically it was the high profile black athletes at the time all came together to basically grill Ali and say, Okay, so what is this really about? Before we support you, we just need to know Are you serious about this? Because, you know, all of us could suffer some detriment here for throwing our names behind you. Um, and Ali basically gives them the whole rundown of This is why I'm, I, I don't want to go to the draft. I, I have nothing against these people. And was able to convince all the high profile black athletes at the time, all who attended the summit to say, okay, we're behind you. We believe you should be reinstated. Uh, so when we protest, that's going to be part of our demands that you are no longer stripped of your titles, that the New York state athletic association, um, the commission reinstates your boxing license, which, which was also stripped. So it's, it's not even that they just took titles. He couldn't make money. He couldn't make a living. Um, so that, From a result of the summit that Jim Brown put together, um, that did become part of demands. Yes.
0: One last thing about those two. I have their official statement, so I think it would be good for our listeners to have their their exact words. So quote unquote, we must no longer allow this country to use a few so-called Negroes to point out to the world how much progress she has made in solving her race problems when the oppression of Afro-Americans is greater than it ever was. We must no longer allow the sports world to pat itself on the back as the citadel of racial justice when racial injustices of sport of the sports world are famously legendary. Any black person who allows himself to be used in the above matter is a traitor because he allows racist whites the luxury of resting assured that those blacks in the ghettos are there because they want to be there. Run in Mexico to only crawl home.
1: Yeah, and I and I think I think an important point a- after reading that is to talk about how the media often hijacks their message, right? You know, the message that Kaepernick was was trying to push forward, and and the message that Smith and Carlos were pushing forward were completely changed by the by by the media and the bias in the media, just labeling them as as, as black um, activists or or um, you, you know. Um, even stormtroopers like Brent Musburger, fr- famous Mister Brent Musburger, Mister 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 uh, Sportscaster, he called he he wrote an article at the time. Musburger was 29 years old at the time he wrote an article in which he called Smith and Carlos look like a couple of black skinned stormtroopers. That that was his uh, that was his quote. And then he was called out. He was asked about it a, a later in like '99, and he didn't really back down. He's like, yeah, they didn't really do anything. What was the, what was the point? They they, they didn't accomplish anything. And this is, you know, Brent Musburger, he's still calling football games and he's still, you know, the voice. And that's that's what happened to those guys. And that's what happened to Kaepernick, where his message was not about the armed forces, but that's what it was in the media. So that's what it all became. And that's where a lot of the vitriol came, I think.
2: I think that's a great point about how media perceives the protest to be, because in many of the examples, it becomes about something that's not even the objective of the person, group of people, persons who are protesting and demonstrating their activism. It, it gets turned into, you know, something so many times that's the antithesis or just something that be more for clickbait or to distract from what the actual issue is. I think that's, that's a fantastic point.
0: And to that point, I think Muhammad Ali is an interesting example in the other direction where he seems to be sanitized by history, like his his life as a protester has kind of been the victim of some revisionist history. Like later in his life, he was throwing first pitches at baseball games. He's in these commercials and there's not really a connection to his life as a member of the nation of Islam or changing his name or his highly politicized life as a boxer. So what do you think about that, Olivia?
2: Um, I think that's a very fair point. And even, you know, and I was studying, you know, and researching for the episode and I'm thinking to myself, I sat through a whole year of constitutional law. It's, it's four credits, one semester and two credits, another semester. We talk about some of the most, the the seminal and most important Supreme court cases uh, that have defined our lives. And I've gone through, you know, I've looked through many books. I was a research assistant for my constitutional law professor. It is so hard to find a constitutional law textbook that talks about Clay versus the United States. I, I don't even know how many people truly know that his case went up to the Supreme Court. Yeah, truth be told, i it's one of those things that if you tell people, they go, really? The Supreme, his case went to the Supreme Court. There was a court case. It's, and you know, I'm thinking that I'm in a place where this should be taught for sure in the landscape that we're in, especially uh, it's a very pivotal court case as far as the rights that we have as citizens of the United States, the rights that people have on their jobs, in their homes, in their free time, the right to protest. Um, but But Clay versus the United States is a huge case and it's just kind of, it's just one of those that's just maybe, you know, or maybe you don't. And I also think, yes, to your point, once he became visibly affected by Parkinson's disease, then people were much, much nicer. Um, you, you know, lighting the torch at the Olympics in Atlanta, all of these subsequent things that happened with him being hailed as this figure, this wonderful figure, which he all you know he really always was, doesn't. Again, it doesn't come until he is largely an incapacitated individual. Doesn't happen. Uh,
0: Olivia, I wanted to ask you during the height of Ali's activism, I would say mid to late sixties, uh, how was he received by the American public? And this is even before Vietnam came up. I'm, I'm asking about. It.
2: Um, I would say even before Vietnam, right. Because that, you know, so keeping in mind, this is a lot of these events are are really happening and are really layered right on top of each other because it's, it's in 67 that he says that he's not, you know, he doesn't budge when his name is called, when his name is called, you know, to say like, yes, I'm, I'm going to be drafted even before then, Ali, was a, I, I don't think, I don't know if controversial is the word, but somebody who was highly spoken about and somebody who was always a figure who was very popular in minority communities, uh, but amongst a white community, largely people would see him as very cocky. That was a lot, you know, that was a word that was very heavily used with Ali, um, way too confident somebody who people thought needed to be taken down a peg. I think people, there were, you know, in a lot of these instances, I think there were people waiting, waiting for something to happen um, that would either force Ali out of the sport or, you know, force his name to really be talked down on in a different manner. Um, But before he even says that he's not going to war, he becomes a member of the Nation of Islam. And to this day, that is something that is Probably still a controversial topic back then. Oh my God! Someone who was walking around saying that there, you know, was a really good friend for a number of years with Muhammad Ali until they, you know, had fallen out. That was a huge deal and made him a very hated figure amongst a lot, um, a lot of white America. And and don't get me wrong. To a point, even certain parts of Black America, when you said, "I'm with the Nation of Islam," that that was those were alarm bells i I would say for the for the new york state athletic commission i I think that was that was their worst nightmare to a degree
0: do you think it was more so him being a part of the nation of islam or him being friends with malcolm x
2: um i think it's both because the you know malcolm x is somebody who of course as we know stood out from the nation of islam before he defects from the nation of islam um but the nation you know is it's a group right where it's not supposed to be about the individual it's about the whole nation it's about you know all of the group who is moving towards this purpose um so i would say it's it was equal parts because malcolm x had become such a figure in in stepping out but i also would say anytime you say i am part of the noy i think that that triggered a lot for people so equal parts right
0: okay and, and for our listeners, we can give more context about the Nation of Islam on, a, on another episode. What is your take on Ali's fight with Floyd Patterson? That was a very politicized event, was it not?
2: For, I think, a myriad of reasons, heavyweight, heavyweight boxing in particular, uh, has largely been what used to be largely politicized. Anytime there are instances where A black fighter was fighting a white fighter, and it was almost built like a mini race war in in a a sense, because whoever knocked who out, that was the champion, you know, for your whole race of people. And then you get to, you know, this particular time of boxing where it's a lot of these, you know, black heavyweights who are going up against each other, who also largely, you know, didn't like each other. (laughs) <laughs> At all. Um, and, you know, I think most people know that, you know, Frazier hated, and, like certain people hated, hated Ali until like their dying day. Um, you know, whether it's, <laughs> it's Liston, you know, you name it. People didn't, there was no let's all get along. Like, you know, or somebody like Floyd Mayweather taking a, um, what's his name in UFC? Conor McGregor and saying like we could all make money here. <laughs> Let's all make money and do this to get like that. That was not that was not a thing. Um, I think so. When it comes to Ali and Floyd Patterson, I think it's one of the lesser known bouts of his career. You know, of, of both of their careers, um respectively. But I would definitely say that yes, at that time, are there people who thought Ali? got the victory? I arguably so. And I think those opinions are fair, you know, because Ali was kind of being, you know, pumped up at, at the time. And like I said, rightfully so, as, as this really, really dominant champion who was more dominant than a lot of other fighters at the time. Um but I think Floyd Patterson is somebody who was on the losing end um based on his politics. Yes, I would definitely say that. For sure.
1: Yeah, just the, uh, you know, the term, the great white hope, you know, that's that's the boxing, like, you know, is there, gonna, is there ever going to be another white heavyweight champion you now? Like, they actually they say it. They still say it. Like, what? Great white hope. Like, like, like uh, I, I hope so. I hope we win one. <laughs> people, people are nuts. Come on, people are
0: nuts. There was a lot of media instructions at the time too to refer to Muhammad Ali as Cassius Clay. That they would not accept his name change at all.
1: I'm pretty sure that was more about um, going to fight or not. Like Pat- Patterson was, like you know, pretty pretty clear that he would have he would have gone if he was drafted, and you know he didn't he wouldn't call Muhammad Ali. Uh, Muhammad Ali always called him Cassius Clay to the uh, to the reporters, which was another like you know
0: tacit slap in the face. Oh my God, yeah
1: yeah eddie murphy jokes about it in coming to america right like his mother called him cash so i'm gonna call him cash right but those conversations obviously happened. i mean eddie murphy heard those conversations he didn't make that up you know so uh yeah very telling very telling about uh uh, about the nation of islam for sure
0: there's just so many examples we could talk through that that's we're going to be leaving out full leagues and, and people, but I, I did want to touch on the NBA uh, just a little bit because I feel like the NBA and, and I don't want to say their tolerance, but their stamina for protests seem to be more than the other American league. I guess the, the differences between the NBA and the other American leagues, as far as stamina for protests and some of the examples that, that have occurred throughout NBA history, whether it's Kareem or the current or modern day Black Lives Matter protests that we've seen uh, over the summer
2: well I would definitely say that I think in large part uh, I think mr kramer had alluded to it earlier but it, the NBA you know the individual players right it's it's 12 people at you know on a team uh, so you have a, a much smaller scale right versus a 53 man roster with another 40 something people who are on the practice squad and then you have um, a 25 man roster in baseball that expands to 40. In the postseason, um, hockey very similarly as well. You've got you've got twelve guys on an NBA team. Smaller numbers, smaller league, but a league of people who have much more say with ownership, and I would say control the narrative of their sport much more than any other sport in the world um with the exception you know and any other league with the exception of maybe you know tennis individual tennis um and then of course the WNBA. but as far as you know a team sport with so much notoriety and people you know who make a certain amount of money um, the NBA, you know, they have so much weight when it comes to ownership. People make jokes all the time about LeBron tells Adam Silver, you know, what to do. Nobody says that about any other league. Nobody's there's no someone. Tim Anderson tells Rob Manfred what to do. You don't hear that. Um, you certainly didn't hear even to a point Tom Brady telling um, Roger Goodell what to do. You know, people make certain jokes, but you don't hear the jokes in the same way that you do with LeBron and Adam Silver. Um, so when you have players that I think, you know, number one, have largely better contracts, more autonomy, a, a, a better share of the pot, um, I think they have the room to be a bit more vocal than some of the other sports. I think I think that's one major reason. And as I said earlier, you know, money um, I think is at a big root of all of it as far as, who feels they really have the right to exercise their liberties and who feels that they have the the breathing room to do so and who doesn't. Um, There's a reason that the NBA, and I think, you know, large part is the money that they receive and the player share and the rights that they have in there, what their contracts say, they should be at the forefront, to be honest, of everything. And they kind of always happen. I think with the exception of really the forties and, of Jackie Robinson, you know, coming in to play baseball, um, the NBA has really had such a say. So of course there's, you know, Bill Russell, there's Kareem, um, but there's also like Mahmood Roth, who was really the first person I know who said, I'm not standing for the anthem, uh, who was, you know, one of the few people who I don't think has been vindicated and who did suffer, you know, a a shortage of career for making that move in the nineties. But I would say for those reasons, the NBA has been on the forefront of activism amongst the team sport for the better part of the last few decades. Definitely think money talks.
0: And do you think that activism, the activism in the NBA has the global implications that, let's say uh, a Kaepernick has had?
2: I think it I think it could if they did more. <laughs> I I think I think they do a little bit of something, but you know, to be honest, I think the WNBA does more. Um I think as an individual, Kaepernick did much more. Um, you know, and as I as I said earlier, you know, the NFL makes it very clear they're the most popular American sport, right, in terms of viewership and ticket sales. Um, Basketball is not as watched. Baseball is not as watched. Um, but of course, basketball, right? There are certain athletes in basketball who are absolutely 100% global figures. Um, when they decided not to, you know, basically walk out, I think that was a miss. I think that was a huge miss. I think there was an opportunity there for them to say, we're not playing. I think they should have done it. I don't, I I know why they went to Barack Obama for it, you know, but that's another thing to say, but I just think they should have stuck to the, stuck to their guns and said, we're not going to play. We've been told to shut up and dribble. We're not going to dribble at all. We're going to take the entertainment factor away since people think that we're only here for the reason of entertainment and that we can't, you know, also, um, stand for social justice as well. You know, they don't do enough. They don't, you know, bless their hearts. They do a little something, but that was a chance to make a better, <laughs> that was a chance to make more of an impact. When you say we're not playing, when you walk away from the money that's going to be made that day, that's when you really start to get into the next realm of activism, in my opinion.
0: Not not bless their hearts. The NBA definitely could be doing more. I would also concur with you in the sense that the WNBA has really set trends in terms of their level and, and engagement with with social justice issues. I don't even think it's close.
2: No, because in WNBA you actually have people who are you know, as Mr. Kramer said earlier, Atlanta Dream ousted their owner. They said, Mm-mm, "You're not going to profit off of us anymore. We're not doing this." to You know, when ha- when when have you ever seen that happen with the sports franchise? Maya Moore, who is one of the greatest WNBA players, one of the greatest athletes. What,
0: a, what about the Clippers?
2: That's different. Yeah, that's he different. was different. Just very quickly, it's different because the NBA governance, because he was on camera, because we have the actual words, says you must sell your team because you're violating NBA governance. Right. That's different. Atlanta Dream said, "You you are racist, <laughs> and we you will not own this team anymore. You're not profiting. You know, Donald Sterling sold the team for billions of dollars. You know, that's not it's different.
0: <laughs> right, right. No, I, I didn't bring it up because I agreed. I just have heard those rebuttals before, so I, I wanted to I want our listeners to hear. Yeah, people say it.
2: No, absolutely, absolutely, people say it." <laughs>
0: People say it. <laughs> so, kind of, kind of to tie this all together, Olivia, we, we've gone through uh, a plethora of examples of activism taking place in sports. I know in, in modern day discourse, we, we like to we like to say or focus in on Kaepernick as the only occurrence, which is just far from the truth. Your opinion: Do you think it's within scope now, before, and moving forward for athletes to? bring socio-political issues to the sporting world and utilizing their platform in that manner?
2: 110%. Without question, activism has always, will always, and for the future, will have a place in sports. 110%.
0: So, what is your rebuttal to individuals that claim that keeping? uh, we'll we'll focus on the topic of race uh, since that seems to be the the cause of most contempt in, in, in these these conversations what's your rebuttal to individuals that say quote unquote keeping race in sports is exacerbating the problem and that we should utilize this colorblind uh, approach within w- within these spaces
2: i think you know I, as i said to many things if, if people would stop being racist then we wouldn't have to protest racism that's like it's i you know it's and it, i know it's not simple but in that sense it's i'm like well if if you stop being racist then we won't have to protest racism anymore um until that happens it's going to be it you're going to see this happening um i think it's going to become more and more i think you're just going to see individual athletes team sport athletes more and more people um unfortunately as things as people get more frustrated with things that seem to keep occurring, if you know, we're still talking about the same things that we've been talking about for decades and half centuries and centuries now of certain killings and violence and just racism, bigotry, every ism that happens, uh, people are only going to get more and more frustrated. Uh, so, until people really cut it out and get it together, uh, you're only going to see more it's only going to get you know louder and louder
0: and olivia with that i wanted to read a quote for you to to kind of get your thoughts on it and, and close out the episode uh a quote by harry edwards it was inevitable that this revolt of the black athletes should develop with struggles being waged by black people in the areas of education housing employment and many others it was only a matter of time before Afro-American athletes shed their fantasies and delusions and asserted their manhood and faced the facts of their existence. Now, there's a little uh, there's a little patriarchal components to that. But I, I think the, the message in that in that quote bleeds through is that athletes are people. So like once they leave the sporting arena, once they leave their jobs or, or they're behind closed doors and the, the cameras are gone. They're still living in the same problematic society that the rest of black or any other minority group is facing in this country and globally but i wanted to get your thoughts on that if that kind of captured your sentiment
2: absolutely and i would say you know money doesn't change your ethnicity and it never has and it never will it will never insulate you from the problems you face in that arena or outside of the arena Um, We've seen various instances of people while they are playing their sports experiencing racism on national television. It goes to show you um, how skin deep it unfortunately is for a lot of people still um, in this country and around the world. So it is an inevitability that people at some point are going to express their frustration and people are fed up with the isms.
0: Mr. Kramer, did you have anything else before we we closed out?
1: Uh, No, no, I I thought Olivia, Olivia's um, really, really to the point there. Real, real insightful stuff from you. I really appreciate you being here. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's so refreshing to hear, to hear young, strong voices that are, uh, that are so knowledgeable and, and, and see things at such depth. So uh, I, I, I think the two of you really kind of said it all, so.
0: Thank you for listening to the Discriminology podcast.
1: Thanks for tuning into the show. Discriminology is brought to you by Launchpad 516 Studios. Executive produced by George Andriopoulos. Our theme song, Wild Ones, is licensed through Twano Beats, LLC. Other music and sound effects licensed through Epidemic Sound. Discriminology is hosted with Podbean. Make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. Follow us at Discriminology underscore podcast on Instagram, at Discriminology3 on Facebook and Twitter. Make sure to follow all the great podcasts produced by Launchpad 516 Studios.